Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's Monday the 30th of May, and you're listening to World Review, a podcast from The New Statesman. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique combination of insight and expertise. And every Wednesday, we come together to unpack some of the most pressing issues in world affairs. My guest today is Sergei Plochy, professor of Ukrainian history at Harvard. His books include The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, Lost Kingdom, A History of Russian Nationalism, and of course, Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy. His latest book is Atoms and Ashes, From Bikini Atoll to Fukushima. Serhii Plucky, if I can ask you first, the last three months have seen an incredible focus on Ukraine. Your books have been reprinted and are being sold everywhere as everyone tries to figure out the background of what is happening in Ukraine. What have the past three months been like for you, both personally and professionally? It was a difficult time. On the one hand, we all thought that aggression could take place. For months, there was tensions were building up. On the other hand, it, it came as a surprise, as a big surprise. And I learned about the aggression by checking my email and seeing an email coming from a colleague in Ukraine who asked me whether he could actually send me for safekeeping the files of his research because he was leaving the city. And only after that, I went and checked the news and and saw what was happening. And for the next uh, few weeks, at least, it was like never-ending nightmare. You go to bed, you hope that you wake up to, quote-unquote, normal world, and you wake up into nightmare going on and continuing. I I found some sort of a balance or something like that by really uh, continuing my work and continuing also talking to, to, to audiences, to journalists on, on, on the subjects that I researched before. So that was to a degree a uh, way for me at least emotionally to stay, to stay focused and not to fall apart. And your new book is around one of the themes that has emerged in the Ukraine war, Atoms and Ashes, about nuclear accidents, Chernobyl, but also some of the other notable incidents that have occurred since the end of the Second World War. Reading the book, what struck me was the tension between this international sense of inquiry, the scientists who wanted to find out everything, and the secrecy, both the kind of national secrecy around security, but also the secrecy 
inside political structures. Is that a, a fair description? There is this tension. It is. When the war started, again, uh, in terms of my own research, it was the history of Ukraine, the history of Russia that I th- thought was, was relevant and that the expertise and insight that I was trying to share with others. But I never could imagine that nuclear, the subject of this latest book, Atoms and Ashes, would become so important in that war. Because during the first day of the war, the site of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was taken over. And it was taken over by people in unmarked uniforms. So technically, you you couldn't even say or claim that it was Russia. And that's exactly what was happening with the International Atomic Energy Agency, that they would not use the word Russia in their first reports and commentary. And then a few few days later, there was shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The war came to the site of the nuclear power plant. And again, in terms of secrecy, the first case was, okay, people in unmarked uniforms. And then we were hearing nothing from Russia, from the Russian government, the, the, the country of aggressor, the, the power that was responsible for bringing war to the nuclear sites for the first time in history. So it came as a shock. And going back to the accidents that I discuss in the atoms of yeah, and ashes, one of them is certainly Chernobyl. Another is Three Mile Island, Fukushima. The windscale fire in, in England, the Kishtim accident that few people knew about that in 1957, a few weeks before the windscale fire, it happened in central Russia in the Ural Mountains. And then before that, it was the test of the first test of the hydrogen bomb that went terribly wrong at the, at the Bikini Atoll. So those are six cases that I'm looking at. And one of the reasons why I wrote that book was the sort of questions that I was getting from my readers, the readers of Chernobyl book. And the questions were more or less with, with, with a particular message. And the message was that, okay, you described what happened in the Soviet Union, this cover-up and secrecy and so on and so forth. Do you really think that other governments, not communist governments, are better at handling these matters and issues. And they said, okay, really don't let me do this research. Let me find it for myself. And I was surprised to what degree we see in all this case, six cases, more or less the same story. No one really loves to deliver bad news. No one, when it comes to the politicians, is there to take responsibility for what had happened. And the attempt are actually to keep public in dark in one case after another, one case after another. That being said, of course, in the Soviet Union, and two of those accidents happened in the USSR, one Kishtim, another Chernobyl, the, the industry and the authorities and the political, political leaders were really able to get away with, with a murder. Because the, all the media was controlled, the atmosphere of secrecy that came from the Cold War really expanded far beyond area of the military production and nuclear, whether it produced bombs or it produced electricity, it was still top secret. And we see to a degree the same sort of a situation, the same culture going on and in, in, in Russia today. And what happened certainly with the nuclear sites during this war is one more confirmation of that. Another couple of common threads that I noticed from the the cases were the extreme bravery of the workers in some of these plants. They were taking enormous risks 
with their own safety. They didn't always know what they were dealing with. So there's that. And there's the impact on the civilian populations. And they didn't know. And some of the, the things mm -hmm. you describe about the forests denuded of leaves, the cows that went bald, the people who got ill. So it does seem to be that relatively little has been learned from some of these some of these accidents. Yes, exactly. Almost in all of them, what you see being the leaders of the industry and the politicians really very often playing the, these games of secrecy and cover-up and so on and so forth. And you see the extreme heroism of people on the front line, operators, uh, soldiers, and so on and so forth. And this is really something that is not limited just to the communist world or to the quote-unquote free world, to west or to the east, north or south. It's quite unique. But then these people, most of them, not all of them, but most of them taking these risks, they make their decisions, they know what they're doing. Because they were trained as professionals, and again, not all of them exactly, I said, understand fully, but the majority do what they're doing and why they're doing that. But the rest of the population that is being kept in the dark, that's again a universal issue. And people want more information. People want to be in charge of their own fate. They want to be in a position where they make the decisions, whether the position's right or wrong. And again, it, it depends on the government, the democratic governments, they, mm, just the structures of the, si of the kind that they have to share more information to, to stay politically alive. The authoritarian government, of course, to stay politically alive, engages as much cover-up as possible. And uh, in that sense, again, uh, in, in the countries and the, in the societies where the information is limited, the, the impact, the negative impact on health, on environment, is much, much bigger than in the open and democratic societies, which is, again, an, another interesting discovery from my research about what, when an accident happens and you are a person living in, in the vicinity or in relative vicinity of what happened, your chances of protecting yourself are much better if you live in democratic society. There is a lot of concern around nuclear energy. Is it fair just to focus on the accidents in this book? Isn't there a risk that people look only at what has gone wrong? It is uh, fair if it's not the only, the only research, the only coverage that is out there. And why, why accidents are important? They are important, first of all, to uh, to understand what went wrong and draw lessons. And if either there is government-imposed secrecy, or there is, we impose on ourselves uh, certain limitations, saying, okay, we are fighting now climate change. Do we really want to endanger the, this fight by, by looking at the, the negative side of the problems with the nuclear energy? Uh, maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's not a timely book. And my argument is that, well, it, it is very timely, exactly because we are looking at, at nuclear. And the, my argument there is not to scare away people from nuclear, but the argument is, okay, that is what happens. This is, happens again and again and again. We try to learn lessons, but somehow the nuclear gets us from the side that we never thought, never believed that it could happen. The developments of the last uh, few weeks and months, who would ever thought that a nuclear power plant would be shelled? None of them was designed to withstand that kind of, of warfare on their territory. 
So here is another surprise. And I, I heard criticism before. I would hear criticism again. Okay, we are thinking about new technologies. Lessons are learned. So it's the, the, the good arrogance that comes with the pride in your profession. And, or, okay, Chernobyl was a bad design and bad reactor. Okay, look at Fukushima. Good design and good reactors. Better designs at Zaporizhia and there is a war happening. So there is tsunami, there is war, there is something else. And nuclear is, it comes with a risk. And we as a society, because we are impacted both by benefits of the nuclear, but also when something goes wrong with nuclear, we have to know and understand those risks to make the right decisions. So it's not about me saying, okay, make this decision or that decision. This is about going back to my daytime job of educator and educating the public and saying, okay, that's what is there. Think about it. Make the decision. Every decision that we make comes with a risk. The trick, it's impossible to avoid that risk. The trick is to be as, to educate ourselves as much as possible so that we would make those decisions with, with understanding of what, is, what the consequences can be. It's not the technology, is it? It's the people. It's, it's both. But again, my book, again, I'm not, not, not a physicist, not a chemist, not a nuclear engineer. And uh, I look really at, at people and at, at, at culture and society. And this, the, this is questions that, that I'm asking. But one thing that I learned about technology, which came as a surprise to me, all of the reactors that we have today, all, None of them was designed specifically with the task of boiling water and producing electricity. They, they, their design is adapted designs from the reactors that were created and built originally for military purposes, either for enrichment uranium and, and, and production of plutonium for bombs or the more safer type of reactors, the water reactors. They were designed as to mm, power submarines. And then the design w was adjusted. So now we are, we are talking about the new generation of the reactors coming, smaller modular reactors, which for the first time in human history would be designed specifically for boiling water. And there, there are great expectations, but there are also great concerns because any uh, new technology comes from a period of really rough beginning because we can't, we, we're humans, we can't foresee everything. So even with the new technology, I expect long-term improvement, but short-term uh, accidents and calamities because any, a, anything that you think about, it starts with, with a really rough period of, of trial and, 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 and error and learning. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain 
on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Is nuclear worth the price? Because all this development costs a lot of money. Based on what you have learned from researching this book, should the world be pursuing this avenue or should it be looking more at renewables? Because yes, there are technological problems there. You mentioned battery storage, for example. But if the money spent on nuclear was spent on that, is there not a decent chance? And would it not make more sense, based on what you've learned, to direct energy in mm-hmm. towards that yes the argument that uh, that i am making in terms of in, in very practical terms apart from education i thought okay I, I learned all of that i studied that so probably people will expect from me some some recommendation not just description of what happened and my my approach is that first of all it was wrong decision on the part of germany to after fukushima to shut down the nuclear reactors. The reactors were already there. Whatever environmental damage was done was already done at the time of their construction. And the electricity that is being produced at this point is one of the cleanest. Germany ended up to be in the uh, host of that decision, rush decision, uh, panic decision, ended up burning more fossil fuels which is bad for environment, and then ended ending up being dependent, super dependent on Russia, which is bad for political environment, not, not just for Germany. And this is a lesson to be learned. So my argument is that the reactors that are already there, 
They, they, they should be there. We, 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 it, it's 10% of the electricity worldwide, 20 in the US. It seems to me up to 70 or 80 in France and so on and so forth. We just can't shut them down and, and then go and burn coal. On the other hand, when it comes to the... My, my recommendation is that, okay, I don't think it makes much sense to invest in the technology of the 20th century. Let's look at the technologies of the 21st centuries. If we would have unlimited dollars and pounds and things like that, okay, we can certainly do that. But we don't have, we don't have that, that unlimited capability. So we have to think about investing those money in the industries that can fight climate change without creating the sort of a risk to the environment that nuclear creates. The challenge is how to save the planet from the climate change without destroying the environment at the same time. And the answer to this challenge is not new. The answer to this challenge is, again, investing in the research on, on, on the batteries, on, on, on cleaning the green gas gases that produce uh, the industries that already here produce it into the renewables in general. And the argument is, okay, we need a mix and, and the renewable re relatively small portion of what, what we have. But the point is that they're also the most dynamic and they're growing. They show the ability to grow and that part of our pie is becoming bigger and bigger, which is excellent. And that, that trend should be supported, first of all. But without this panicky decisions. In other cases, Austria, where in the mid-1970s they, they built the plant and then voted not, not, to, not use to, it, it to use it, and still are dependent on the uh, energy produced by nuclear, but outside of Austria. So we can also learn from, from our mistakes, not only in terms of how to run to the, the reactors, but also how to, to deal, how to handle nuclear. One of the things that surprised me reading about the accident at Kishtim was that, that some of the same people were in charge there in the 1950s as were still in charge at Chernobyl in the 1980s. It's, it's extraordinary. Yes, yes, absolutely. The, the same people. And uh, on the one hand, that was a positive thing in a sense. Okay, they knew what it was, that they, they had some, they developed already some techniques. And, but on the other hand, of course, they, they, they were repeating the same mistakes. And this is longevity that the Soviet Union, when it comes to leaders and, and no change, no mechanism really, effective mechanism for changing leaders, was certainly, was certainly there very much. And that's the, another story about the authoritarian regimes. And when you look today at where the nuclear is being developed and who are in the forefront, of course there is France, of course there is South Korea. But the two major players are Russia and China. And uh, they're certainly not democratic regimes by any stretch of imagination. They also are capable to, to develop nuclear and uh, make the sort of offers to the other countries to take their nuclear by providing um, credits that other um, industry itself, without the support of the government, can't, can't do that. The nuclear energy started to develop in the 1950s and 1960s with extremely strong support of the government. Without uh, government guarantees and subsidies and so on and so forth, nuclear has difficulty existing even today because it is so costly. And the um, return on your investment comes not years, decades after that. So the market has really difficulty 
dealing with, with the nuclear without backing of the government. And the government was there support the nuclear as part, uh, as, in particular in the 1950s, as part of the public relations campaign. Building the bombs and trying to calm down the population and saying that, okay, there are atoms for war, but there are atoms for peace. And you can actually, you, the taxpayer, can benefit from that. That's certainly the origins of, of the nuclear in the United States and partially in UK as well. So the government was there. The governments now are interested partially in the nuclear because we are in the renewed nuclear arms race. And there, from that point of view, there is a repetition of uh, the 1950s. But if you live on its own to, to whatever business model is this nuclear, I don't think it actually can compete. It, it certainly can compete with renewables today because renewables are subsidized, but not probably with gas and, and not with coal and so on and so forth. So th there is a lot of politics in nuclear, both domestic and, and international, in terms of how it is financed. In terms of liabilities, look look at Fukushima. Waste. Uh, yes, and 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 then unresolved that the technological issue uh, matters of waste and nuclear waste. What what to do with it? We are passing this 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 problem to to the next generations. So when you think about the cost of the nuclear, it's not just what it costs to produce it now. Think about what does it mean to decommission and completely clean at least one nuclear. A power station that I'm not talking about Chernobyl that exploded. It's, it's horrific, but the one that functioned normally and 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 uh, functioned to, to, till the end of the uh, time that was designed for that. We still don't know. We still don't have the the, the, the the final bill of what that costs. So it's much more expensive energy than we believe when we count what we pay for it now, because the part of the bill is passed to the generations, future generations. Coming back to your earlier points about civilians in democracies had a much better chance because there was more transparency and there was more access to information and the, the difficulties of communication in a closed authoritarian regime. Is it possible to read across from the nuclear establishment to the way the war is going in Ukraine? Because the Ukrainian armed forces have spent a lot of time modernizing and changing their, their command structure. And what we've seen with Russia is that Everyone expected this to be over much more quickly, and they, they've suffered defeat after defeat. And this is being put, put down partly to the fear of communicating bad news. So are there lessons from your book on nuclear energy for, what, for the war in Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I can't agree more. It's uh, one, one part of the problem and issue is the war, how it's been run by, by Russia or is being run by authoritarian regimes is that okay, there is one person at the top that makes all the decisions and then there are people under him who are, um, don't want to deliver uh, bad news or take responsibility for, for anything at all. And uh, it's not like this is completely unheard mode of behavior in, in any country, in any society, but in the democracy it's much, it's much more difficult to do that. And another thing uh, what you see, it's basically Basically, that the, the model of this top-down approach is also the model not only how the war is being waged, but also how the society 
functions. And the democratic society is much more open to allow the commander of the platoon, a commander of the brigade or something like that, make decisions on their own. And um, uh, what what we see in Ukraine is sort of a miracle on the deeper that no one expected. There are two things that came together. One thing is that really in the last few years, the Ukrainian military that never, no one have actually heard about or discussed, all, all the focus was on the Russian military. So it had emerged out of nowhere, but really not out of nowhere because the, a lot of, of people, especially officers, went through the training together with NATO. And NATO has a different, again, philosophy of uh, the, the, the country's it's a diff- different political system and different philosophy of running the war. And then it clicked very nicely with Ukraine and Ukrainian society. She was one of very few post-Soviet countries where actual democracy prevailed. There were two attempts to introduce some form of authoritarianism. They were rejected through two revolutions or Maidan protests. And uh, this is the case where this NATO philosophy of waging the war with Ukrainian political philosophy clicked and produced this miracle, and we see now the army that no one ever knew existed, fighting the most uh, feared army in the world and winning. Serhii Plokhi, thank you. That's all we have time for. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, rate, review us, or tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.